Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and during high school, I worked as a page for my local library. And I'm Michael Ralph, and during high school, I work as an umpire for Little League Baseball. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So lean in as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Cherry Fandango, a cherry kettle sour beer from the Toppling Goliath Brewing Company. You should have seen my face when you said that this was a sour. I forgot this was a sour. You did this to us, Ralph. I know I, I, know I did. No, did I? I didn't. Yeah, I did. I bought this on purpose. You like I did us. this. You did like, this to I us. I uh, normally uh, am, oh am the purveyor of the beer. I bring the beer to the show, but not this week. Ralph has not only selected the beer, but actually acquired it for us. I'm pouring it, and it kind of pours like a soda. Yeah, it looks like a like the big red, um, red cream soda is what it really looks like. It's yeah. so red. It even I even see bubbles on the side of the glass like I would with a soda. What are we doing today, umpire? Student social, emotional, and behavior development will be a critical consideration for teachers returning to physical classrooms in the fall. We read a national study examining the various methods schools use to screen students for social, emotional, and behavioral needs. Universal screening is still rare in the U.S., but its impacts are considerable. Later, we discuss the emotional display rules for teachers. How are we expected to show or not show our emotions with students or colleagues? We read how the rules are not the same for everyone. Let's get started. The first article we read is called Exploring Social, Emotional, and Behavioral Screening Approaches in U.S. Public School Districts. This was written by Jennifer Deneen, Sandra Chafulius, Amy Breesh, D. Betsy McCoach, Sarah Newton, and Dakota Centrone. This was published in American Educational Research Journal in 2021. So that's what it was. So I was so I queued this because I was I was reading over material, right? I just, I'm a, I'm a member of AERA, which is the professional organization that publishes this journal, and so I was reading over things just because I read things sometimes. And I know that you prioritize thinking about mental health and well-being and socio-emotional outcomes in education. And so um, when I saw this title, I immediately thought of you. But we had other stuff already queued, and so I just had to put it several months in the future. And here we are reading it now. Well, I love it. It's super sweet. And uh, it was, it was, I really enjoyed reading it. So social, emotional, behavioral stuff or general mental health stuff for students is, you know, uh, how are these students, um, how are they dealing with themselves and each other as they are uh, developing into people? You know, how are they doing? Um, I think that a lot of time when we think of social and emotional and behavioral stuff in the classroom, we immediately go to the extreme case examples of uh, emotional disturbance or behavioral disorders. It turns out that this whole field, this whole idea extends far beyond those, those extreme cases. Uh, and that, uh, you know, as humans, all of us are dealing with our own uh, mental health uh, and wellness. And uh, our students are doing that too. 
acknowledging social and emotional and behavioral uh, components to education is getting more attention pretty much uh, across the board, whether you're a teacher, an administrator, a politician, a citizen, recognizing that uh, this topic is becoming more uh, integrated into public education. They define social, emotional, and behavioral disorders to encompass things like attention deficit and also other things like anxiety and depression. And so it's kind of a wide umbrella of lots of things that include mental health and well-being, as, a, as well as some uh, things that would merit enrollment in special education or um, the provision of an IEP or something like that. And so uh, a piece of this was, as you said, it's getting greater attention recently, especially like in our state in Kansas. It's a it's a focus um, of some of the folks who are doing who are leading education right now, but it's still not very well. Um, I don't want to say not very well, but it, it's still not broadly implemented. There's still not any clarity on how we're going to approach that um, as school districts and as school leaders. Um, it's also super unclear how we're going to evaluate the efficacy of some of the attempts to address social, emotional, and behavioral issues in schools. One of the statistics that jumped out in the introduction section to me that makes sense and also makes me a little bitter uh, is the fact that there are is that there are more schools with programs addressing social, emotional, and behavioral issues than there are schools that have definitions of standards for social, emotional, and behavioral issues. So we've got programs that don't actually have standards or what I'm going to operationalize as like goals. Like we don't, we don't know why we're doing it, but we're doing things already and we need to do better. Yeah, I think culturally we're at a place where we're kind of looking at each other and saying, should this be a priority? Yeah, this should be a priority. Yeah, I think, I think, let's agree. I think we do agree. This should be a priority. Well, then the next question is, what does making this a priority look like? And we do not have a consensus or even a direction for answering that question. If we're gonna make the socio-emotional and behavioral health of our students a priority, what does that look like? Are we doing that? How do we do that? What's actually going on here? The procedure for this paper was simply to look at a bunch of databases where surveys had already been done, aggregate them into categories that they cared about, and then resort the data uh, based on that. So this is uh, sort of a meta. They did look at databases. That's definitely true. I want to find district administrator survey. Uh, so the reason that I'm putting up a flag is one of the one of the biggest advancements of this study compared to other studies is that they collected a nationally representative sample and that it was a huge crap ton of work to get a nationally representative sample. They had to put in a tremendous amount of energy to get the sample that they did. They reached out to over 12,000 school districts across the country, inviting them to participate in this study. When I say them, I'm talking about like superintendent level administration, uh, saying that here's the purpose of the study. It's going to be good for everybody if you participate. And they were really determined to, um, to convince people to participate. I think what they say, five or six touch points of invitation and reminder and re-reminder, six, six touch points. They really did their best to get participation. And so they had about 10% of the districts in that over 12,000 invitation group that actually did participate and submit information about how they just how they were um, addressing social, emotional, and behavioral issues in their organizations. 
And so that's not particularly glamorous, but it's worth pointing out because it's not something that existed in the literature base before. It was a lot of convenient samples. Like, who, who do you already know? Talk to them. And they're like, we have to know what's going on broadly. It's just, it's really important because the, the landscape is so fragmented. And so they did the work to go out and get a more representative sample of the country. And they generally succeeded. They spent a lot of energy describing their sample and it, it did, it did, it did a good job of looking like the country. And then once that work was done, then they looked at some national database and then f for the participating districts so that they could get up, broaden the information that they're getting. So I, I guess I skipped a super important step there in my initial description. So what did they do? Once they had that data, they divided it in, and these are my words, not theirs, into three groups. Uh, schools that used preventative approaches for social, emotional, and behavioral uh, scanning, schools that did responsive reproaches, and schools that essentially had no approach. Uh, and there's a little more nuance than that. Um, in the in those that I were calling preventative approaches, those would be where they would screen every student, or in some cases, teachers would specifically nominate students for screening. Then there was the responsive reproaches, which were uh, we think there's a problem in the classroom or we think the student is having a particular issue that we're seeing patterns for, let's get them screened. So it's after the fact kind of issues. And then there were students, there were schools that either didn't have an issue at all or didn't have a system at all, or they sent the students to, to organizations outside the district. So the, there was a lot of scatter in the results that they saw. Things were really different from school to school, district to district, state to state. The vast majority of schools used a responsive uh, paradigm, which makes sense. As in the teachers doing their thing, doing their thing, doing their thing. Uh, everyone just kind of uh, is trying their best. Then they see a problem, a problem the teacher doesn't know how to solve immediately. And then they start finding examining the student to see if there's a more complicated issue here. Yeah, you're saying responsive. I don't like that word for it. Uh, well, it's passive. It's, it's it, reactionary, I think, is the word. Reactive. Reactive, I think, is reactive, the word the authors yeah. used. Um, and I think what's important in this case, like responsive, I know on this show, if you listen to the show a lot, when we say responsive, it's usually a good thing. It's usually like responsive to what I'm seeing. But in this scenario, I sort of think of it like we're talking about healthcare is essentially what we're talking about. And so if I don't go to the doctor until I feel sick enough that I have to go to the doctor, that's, that's, that's a problem in many cases. And so in this case, to take a reactive stance or posture in the district is to say how many students are dealing with some sort of issue or could, could benefit from support if they were proactively identified as somebody who could benefit from support before we see enough problems that is sufficiently dramatic that a teacher takes the steps necessary to, to refer them or whatever the other related mechanisms might be. And so that reactive is, is, is the pound of cure when what we really need to be doing is an ounce of prevention. Yeah. Okay. So we'll use reactive. I'm not married to it. Uh, so uh, yeah, most folks are, most folks are, are, are reactive rather than proactive. The, so what are the pieces, the, I'm just going to say it. The, the thing that jumped out at me in their data that was like, that's interesting. And I want to know more about why that is, is the one of like the, the top concerns 
for school districts that are stuck in reactive systems or don't have a system that that I understand is concerns about like feasibility or like we're not sure how this is going to work where we're going to get the resources to do this or we don't have the expertise to be doing this like in the district or whatever and yet the districts that do the the most comprehensive work to proactively screening all of their students are more likely to be the administrators who are reporting they feel the most knowledgeable they feel the most willing to make changes to their system they feel like what they're doing is the most feasible uh, is that right? That's not what I, that's not what I got. I got that those districts, yes, felt like they were the most knowledgeable. Yes, felt like they were the most willing to change, but there was no statistical difference in their regard for feasibility. Am I wrong? No, no, you're not, no, you're not, you're not wrong. Um, I want to argue with you, but what you have said is defensible is what I, that's what I'm going to say. The, <laughs> That's the best kind of argument. Yeah. The effects of... Let me make sure I'm reading the right one. I'm pretty sure I am. The, they achieved a p-value of 0.06. Uh-huh. I understand what you're telling me. So, like... If you're working at the point... It's really suggestive. <laughs> but they have a really big sample size. Yeah. So, like, it's not like it's, not like it's a rounding error. Like right. They, I just go for the, uh, go for the, the headline and then just operate from there. Um, and to me, that didn't change the narrative because the, the national narrative is still, do we agree this is a priority? Yes. Should we be scanning? Yes. Do we know what to do about that? No. And even in the places that are further ahead in the making it a priority thing, making it a priority, they still don't really know systemically, what do we do about it? Like. We know these are the issues that our kids have. We can scan for the issues that our kids have. We're willing to do things to change the system. But what do we do? Well, and so that's the thing that I think you're right. Like, what do we do about this from a policy standpoint? Like, because this is a systems kind of a conversation. And I, I am persuaded we should be doing universal screening. I am persuaded about that. And so from a policy standpoint, there is a question of like, how do we do a system of screening? Like that it has to logistically happen. How do we do it? And so I think that that piece is, is relevant. Like it's not negative. It's definitively not negative. So the districts who are implementing universal screenings are not reporting it's less feasible or that they see it to be less feasible. They may not be reporting that it's more, that may not actually be more feasible. It might not. It, it might not, depending on your risk tolerance there. Um, but the, that is definitely the question I can hear in my ears of somebody bringing up. We say we should be doing universal screening. Like the first question is where are we going to get the money for that? Where are we going to find the time for that? How are we going to manage all that data? And so if it is feasible to be doing a broader um, universal screening approach, that would be, that would be my headline. Like, I want that to be true. Uh, this paper changed my perspective of my own district uh, in, a, in a positive fashion. Like, I'm looking at my district in a more uh, satisfying manner after having read this paper than I did before. It was, it was a vast minority of districts that are participating in even attempting screen at all students. Just, just a dismally low number. I don't know what it was. Yeah, it was just a terribly low amount uh, that are actually trying to screen all students. And my district is trying to screen all students. And I was, you know, bitter and 
like throwing a fit that I, I I was dissatisfied by their attempt. And the kids were like, is this important? And I'm like, well, it's not very effective. And like th throwing a fit about all of this, like my, my district attempt. But when I recognize where we are at the national narrative, that kind of makes my district pioneers just for trying and good for them. Uh, now that I've read this and I have a better perspective, uh, a broader perspective uh, with more understanding, thanks. Thanks, my district, for uh, for putting that out there. Um, in Kansas, there is sort of a, um, uh, I think that at a, at a Kansas legislator uh, level, there are some recognitions that this is important and districts need to assess uh, the social, emotional, and behavioral health of our students. And, but there's no mandates about how that should happen. So the districts are actually free to try to solve that problem themselves. And our district is currently giving students a mandated survey. All students must take this survey uh, about, hey, how you doing kids? And it's a self-responsive survey, right? The kids can say, I feel great. They can lie. The kids can say, I feel terrible. They can lie. Or the kids can say, this is what I'm experiencing right now in my life. And just the fact, and so I, you know, like it's self-responding, it's not sophisticated, you know, what, what are we going to use this information for? How is it useful? And I was, I had been going through school you know, the past couple of years being a real down about it and being very judgmental. But when I recognize uh, we don't have a lot of uh, sophisticated tools for this, and this is kind of a new assessment measure. And, and we recognize that these are important as there's been, you know, teenage mental health crises that have been documented in the past decade. So we recognize it's important. How do we go about addressing it? Uh, we're trying, and we're trying to do it for every student. And that is that's, I'm just going to say, correct. Uh, and we can get better at it, but we are doing it now. So cheers. Yeah, and I think a piece of this conversation is like not forgetting the early comments in the introduction about the benefits of early identification. Because I think that's relevant to this like feasibility piece is it's going to be it's going to be hard to talk to every student. Even if it's the implementation of an early survey, I'll be the first person to tell you it's hard to make a good survey. Um, but the benefits to being able to support students early rather than trying to solve more substantial problems as they get older is real. And I think it probably feeds back to some of that feasibility recognition of, yeah, it was hard to get the system in place, but some of the other issues that we're dealing with are maybe less common um, or other students are more effectively able to support their peers or just the benefits of more robust support early on for social, emotional, and behavioral development. And so I don't, I think that's something that we need to remember. It's not just, a, oh, this is good for that student, but like, no, really, we're going to have to put in the work either now or later. Let's put it in now and get the most benefits. Um, there are two pieces that I wonder, one of them, and I'm certainly, I'm in Kansas. And so we're, um, we're letting districts figure it out. There was a piece early on where they defined universal screening as uniform, I'm going to say the word uniform screening, standardized screening, and they they, they set those words as synonymous, standardized and, and universal. Uh, and I think that's an assumption that we can re-examine. Um, to say we need to screen all students is not the same thing that we have to screen all students the same way, uh, especially from a district standpoint. Like, I, we don't need to make that assumption. Like, it doesn't matter if if what I do in my classroom is comparable to what you do in your second, in your second grade classroom, it just doesn't matter if they're comparable. What matters is if we're catching students who need something 
And so if we catch them entirely differently is just really beside the point. Like this is about practice and not about, about research. And so uh, I want to take issue with that assumption that universal screening has to be uniform screening because I think that it fundamentally doesn't. In fact, I think it probably shouldn't be the same for everybody. Like people are different. Classrooms are different. Contexts are different. So like I start from the assumption they probably should not be the same. What we want is that whatever methods are being used are efficacious, that you are actually catching the issues. And uh, what, though there could be some, you know, biologically standardized issues that are statistically the same everywhere in the United States, everywhere in the world, there are also probably places where some issues are more complicated and more prevalent than others. So, you know, spending all of your time with a fine-tooth comb to try to find something that doesn't exist in prevalence where you're at is not a good use of resources, even if it's standardized. So like, what are the issues that are prevalent here? Let's find an effective tool for identifying them early, and then we can become more sophisticated as time goes on as, as we're able to be effective with these particular endeavors. Uh, so that may be uh, d designed at a situational or place-by-place -place manner. Yeah, and that's a so that's that's a good thing to remind me of is to to say that we should recognize the variability of context is not the same thing as to say deal with it however you want because that's how you get to some of the reactive like teacher identifies only the worst problems or identifies with some of their implicit and unexamined biases over representing some over others like that and none of that none of that is good we don't want any of that so uh, you're right that those things need to be counterbalanced. There was one other thing, there was one other note that um, I think the authors acknowledged, but I, it, it, I had the same thought. Um, they pointed out that there were no difference between the different uh, groups of inter intervention strategies, these, these reactive versus proactive groupings, but there were no statistical differences with regard to what they called distal outcomes. And then they gave a list of things like students identified for special education later on, or students with 504s or uh, suspension rates. And they, they gave a list of like six or seven of these outcomes. And one of the things that gave me pause was that I immediately didn't expect that some of the benefits, maybe even a lot of the benefits that come from early interventions would be things that actually impact those distal outcomes. I think those might be poor measures of the kinds of benefits that you're going to see from universal screenings. And so the, you know, you can screen and identify students who have um, substantial problems and you're still gonna have to help them navigate those problems. Like those problems may not go away when they get older. They might be dealing with some of those uh, circumstances for the rest of their lives, and it's our job to help them do that. But that doesn't make them like that doesn't make them not need special education services when they're older. They they still need those. Like it's still appropriate for them to get the education that they deserve. And so those numbers I wouldn't expect to change either. And they and the authors acknowledge it also. There might be there might be other measures, and I think that there certainly are other measures that we should recognize that are benefits of supporting students with early anxiety symptoms so that they can learn to manage those in their own cognitive processes and minimize the negative impacts on their behavioral patterns as they get older. And so that what they're benefiting in is academic achievement. What they're benefiting in is uh, interpersonal relationships and as opposed to suffering academically and being at a greater risk of dropout and some of the other things that are just not measures that are in these things like 
screening should not change the rate of enrollment in special education. I just, I wouldn't, it shouldn't change that. Right. So like, ideally, I imagine a world where we have longitudinal life satisfaction surveys for students that grew, that, that experienced schools that did universal screening and schools that did nothing at all. And, and so, you know, we might not see significant differences until 15 years after graduation, where we're, we're saying, that, yeah, the coping skills that I developed, I have been using significantly since then to build a life that I am at peace and happy with, as opposed to maybe uh, less adaptive coping mechanisms uh, where those issues hadn't been addressed uh, at a time so that major problems could be circumnavigated. Like, the value of social, emotional, and behavioral health extends throughout one's lifetime. So the idea that, yeah, we scanned for someone when they were in fifth grade and we got them out of special education in seventh grade is just an unrealistic expectation for how these systems work. Empower each other. For our second segment, we read Teachers' Perceptions of Emotional Display Rules in Schools, a Systematic Review. This was written by Christabel Stark and Elizabeth Bettini. This was published in Teaching and Teacher Education in 2021. So I cued this paper uh, because this was an opportunity for me, and I suspect it was an opportunity for you also, um, to, to really spend some time looking closely at an assumption that I have always held in my career. Um, Because I definitely have throughout my entire time teaching in either a high school or a university classroom had some pretty, uh, pretty clearly defined boundaries and how I was willing to uh, engage in my own behaviors, what I was willing to show when I was willing to show it, uh, and under what circumstances I just I definitely did some heavy modulation of my own emotional, emotive patterns, I definitely have always done that. Uh, And I can't put my finger on why. I don't know why I've always been that way. I assumed it was just a personal preference. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. And so this paper was literally speaking to why do teachers do that? And I was like, why do they do that? Why do I do this that way? And so it was an opportunity to kind of examine some of my own unexamined behaviors. So uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this paper, perceptions of emotional display rules in schools. Uh, It reminds me of a story that I was, uh, it reminds me of interaction I had with students recently and my principal too, um, about the interview question, is it important that your students like you? You're You're a new teacher, you're you're, you're doughy-eyed, you're super excited, you can't wait to get into the classroom because you don't actually know how hard it's gonna be yet. And uh, the principal asks you, the hiring principal asks you, is it important that students like you? And uh, my principal said that she has, there's a typical answer that new teachers give and no, it's not important that they like me, it's important that they respect me. And she says, that's just a dead giveaway for a new teacher. And she does not hold that against new teachers. It's just what she expects new teachers to say. And she says, experienced teachers answer it a little differently. They say, uh, yeah, actually it is important they like me because 
if they like me, they feel safe. And if they feel safe, then they can learn. And I thought that's a really important answer. And so then I was uh, talking to some potential teachers, teachers that are that that are studying to be teachers, teachers that are kids that want to be teachers when they when they grow up. And I said, there's actually there's actually an answer even better than that. And I said, it is important. It's not important that they like me, but it's important that they like my teacher persona, because there's going to be components of me and my personality that they just if they knew they would just judge me and it would they would feel unsafe. They would not like it. Uh, and it would cause a sticking point that that some of the students wouldn't be able to get past to actually focus on the cognitive development skills that I want them to have. So no, it's not important that they like me, but it is important that they like my teacher persona. And that is what this paper was about. Teachers' perceptions of emotional display rules in school. What are the rules for the teacher persona that you are developing with your kids? That's what this paper is about. And the big takeaway that I didn't expect when I queued this paper up, but I felt like the big takeaway was that uh, we don't all play by the same rules. Yeah. There are some generally agreed upon trends that kind of apply to everybody, but like the thresholds for those rules and how they get applied are different depending on the identities we carry. And that's not fair. And we ought to be talking about it. The general consensus, the operating stage that that we're kind of all playing from is that our emotional presentations are tools to help create a safe space in our classroom and to promote the cognitive development of our kids. They are they are an asset in our toolbox that should not be neglected and they should also not be taken for granted. Um, so like for example, uh, if we're working in my classroom and we're all trying to make this experiment work and I set something up and the apparatus fails for the third time in a row in that class and I, in my internal heart of hearts, if my deep acting, to use a term in the paper, my deep acting is that I feel frustrated and I want to curse and I want to kick this apparatus and I want to give up or at least come back later. What I do in my classroom, what I actually do in the face of that setback or that frustration is a tool for teaching the students in that situation how they can or should navigate a frustrating situation. And so I'm modeling, this is a frustrating thing, but I'm going to keep my, my composure. I'm going to show poise and I'm going to show determination and I'm going to continue to think critically and I'm going to persevere because those are things that I want them to do and I want to show them how to do that. But those emotions might be false. I might actually feel very frustrated. And so how I manage my emotions, how much I let them see that I am in fact frustrated is a decision that I make that is a part of my professional practice. Or even further, you've done this lab with kids for seven years and they fail it three times every time. You might not be frustrated at all. This may be par for the course, but you faking frustration so that you can model regulation behaviors and problem solving behaviors is still modeling appropriate um, growth for these kids. So, uh, our emotional display is an effective and effective tool for our classroom. So there were three general um, uh, common rules or common patterns that the studies that they examined 
um, sort of had across the board. They reviewed a bunch of papers uh, and said in these studies that looked at display rules, what kinds of things, what kinds of perceptions did teachers have about the rules they were navigating? Generally, it's good to show positive emotion. And we want to, we want to be able, we want to, I'm, I'm generally upregulating how much I show positive affect in my classroom. So just a general trend. This is consistent with the idea that you're working to build a emotionally safe space. If students communicate and you respond negatively, then they may become fear, they may become fearful of your negative emotions or your negative responses, in which case they curtail their participation to, to avoid those circumstances. Whereas if they come to expect general positivity from you, then that will normalize their participation because they anticipate things are going to be okay. So that's not, that's not earth shattering. Yeah. Yeah. And that this actually, this pervades all of the elements of professional practice. So it's not just with students, but also if, if I'm that, if I'm that baby faced new teacher and I'm having a rough day and it's the fifth one in a row, like I'm just feeling beat down. I'm feeling crummy. I'm starting to question my abilities. Um, and I walk into the, the staff lounge and there are three veteran teachers there and they ask me, how am I doing? I might not be totally honest about how frustrated I'm feeling because they might judge me in a professional capacity. And so I might falsely, falsely uh, display that I'm, you know what, we're getting along and I'm learning a lot and I feel good. When in my heart of hearts, I'm like, I just want to go home. I just want to crawl into bed and I want this day to be over. Um, but if I show them that, they will judge me as continuing to be a novice, incompetent teacher. And so this pervades all of the elements of the school environment. Um, and then so the converse is true for negative affect, that generally um, generally it is perceived that teachers should be down-regulating the amount of negative affect they show in their classrooms. I think of the two, that's probably the more difficult because it is uh, a discipline of uh, greater self-denial as opposed to amplifying your positive feelings or faking positive feelings it's suppressing negative feelings or doing the deep acting work of an, like anticipating circumstances so that you don't actually have those tr feelings triggered, almost inuring yourself to those uh, negative feelings. And that is, I think, the harder of those two display regulations. Uh, because, you know, we have impulses, right? Uh, if a student says something blatantly hostile or dangerous, I get angry. But if my goal is to foster a change in either cognitive or cognitive behavior or social health, uh, I'm going to be more successful with a gentle approach than a harsh or violent one. And so managing my impulses so that I can maintain a gentle approach in in helping them reconsider their behavior or their their behavior did i say behavior or behavior i don't know what i said but maintaining a gentle approach to help them reconsider their their actions is going to have greater effect than me uh changing their behavior through fear because if i'm changing their behavior through fear then i'm changing their behavior when they're with me but I'm not changing their behavior when they're not with me. 
Uh, and so I, I, you know, what are my goals there? Like if I want them to behave in my classroom, that's different than if I want them to, uh, if I want to aid their maturation into healthy, successful people, those are two different I need to do different things for those two goals. And this is the one that I think takes us into some of the differences between the identities that we carry into our classrooms and how those display rules or the perceptions of those display rules uh, may change. Uh, because the the rules that I experience um, walking into that classroom as a white, cisgendered, heterosexual male is different than what might be experienced by somebody else who does not hold those same identities or does not carry those same identities. Um, and one of the examples was was clear and powerful. And so I want to read a quote from one of the participants of one of the studies. This is specifically with regard to differences in the emotions being displayed and how they're being displayed by, by men and women who teach. And so this is, this is from a female teacher uh, and she is speaking in her own voice. And I'm going to read it verbatim. Um, and I quote, I find that no matter how right I was, the student often feels hurt and angry at the correction and defends himself by attributing the situation to my feeling bitchy, end quote. And that that same experience doesn't happen with a male teacher, that the, the student is more willing to shrug off uh, stern or negative affect and does not attribute it to underlying um, essential attributes, especially not gendered ones. The example quote for that particular narrative uh, was, shut up, Joe. And so if you can imagine a male teacher saying, shut up, Joe, versus a female teacher saying, shut up, Joe, if you have a different emotional response to those two situations, that's what we're talking about. Well, and this extends, again, I'm going to bring it back to the, like, the broader school ecosystem, because this is true of interpersonal interactions among colleagues as well. So if I'm in a faculty meeting, and Joe is actually the um, the old veteran, longtime teacher in the school, and they're saying something smart alecky in a faculty meeting, and I say "shut up, Joe," versus one of my female colleagues says "shut up, Joe." There's also a difference there, being perceived by the colleagues and being perceived by the administrators, and that starts to inform some of how things like the glass escalator emerge, and so. The glass escalator is this phenomenon where you see male educators being promoted out of classrooms and into administrative positions much faster than female colleagues. It makes me angry. I have negative affect. It's so frustrating because I can think of specific instances when I had problems in my classroom and I solved them with ex something very similar to that. Like I, I let out a very sharp, a very strong negative expression that did quell the problem. And I had never noticed any negative consequences of those sorts of choices. And I am positive that my colleagues who are women do not have that tool in their toolbox. Right. They are not allowed to have that tool in their toolbox. I don't know. There's more in this paper, but that's the thing that makes me angry. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of... Um... Uh, yeah, I had some emotional responses to some of the narratives in this paper as well. So I'd like to uh, I'd like to share some of those. There was a story about how our role based identity, what we're teaching, and what our expertise is, how that can affect our um, our display rules 
Uh, and there is this uh, stereotype that uh, science scientists and those that practice it don't display emotion. They look at things analytically, logically. And this is false, 100% false. So now there's this misconception that gets interwoven into the identity of science, and it's just not true. Scientists are personally motivated by their own curiosity. We fund science based on social needs and interests. Um, we make personal judgments about what science should and should not be done. It's a holistically cultural endeavor that is emotionally driven at both a societal and an individual stage. Emotion plays a huge huge role in the conducting of science at every single stage. So the fact that there's a science teacher who is regulating their emotion and passion for science to conform with a societal misconception is just heartbreaking to me. And I will give a counterexample of this in my classroom. This next segment features a grown-up language. So if you have children, perhaps you will turn off for the next few minutes. Um, so I was in my classroom. These are dual enrolled college students. So these are high schoolers taking college credit. So they're college students. And uh, uh, they asked a side question about how density and causing things to float or sink, right? Hot air balloons, how does that work? And so we just shut down the biology we were doing and we went into physics the idea that density and having a, a sort of a, uh, an area that is experiencing greater gravitational pull over an area of mass that has less pull and that things don't really float, it's that other things fall faster under them and then they get pushed upward because of that. Uh, one of the students says, that's amazing. And I said, fuck yeah, it is. That's what I said. And I said that because I was so in the moment and so excited. I really wanted to put some emphasis on this idea that they were excited about how the nuances of these like molecular interactions worked. Uh, I wanted to highlight that. Um, we've got this um, apocryphal story of Archimedes taking a bath and saying Eureka and running down the street naked because he figured out how to tell if something was made of of, of uh, gold or not gold. And it's just that excitement that drives science. And the fact that this teacher was hiding it because she thought that was the right way to teach science, just. Not just thought, but her colleagues were pressuring her to oh. teach that way. Oh. oh, crushing me. How was the beer? I liked it. I typically don't like sours, but I like this one. And I think that the the my comment about it being a soda at the beginning uh, turned to be a little bit working in its favor for me. It's got a nice crispy carbonation. It's definitely sweet. The cherry is not like, it's not like when you have one of those big, thick, dense beers where the cherry is like an airy ghosty finish at the end no no this is this tastes like cherry yeah it's an alcohol cherry sour ball is what it is it was the thought i had with the first drink and i still think it now like it's it's pretty sour but not like 
it's it's candy. It's cherry candy. Yeah, is what it is. Candy. Yeah. What, the, it is. what the sour does is it complements the tartness of cherries, so that they are just both living in that space together, and then you can taste the sweetness. This was offered in many places. I would order it frequently. That does it for another month. We appreciate you tuning in and we appreciate each one of you who are giving us a listen. We wanted to acknowledge, we heard back from some of the authors last month. Um, Dr. Agarwal did give us a listen and suggested some additional resources on both metacognition and retrieval practice. So we're going to post some of those things in in the show notes from this month. If you want to follow up or support and implement your retrieval practice, she has got you. Otherwise, we're going to hope you have an excellent summer and we'll catch you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.